Good morning. It's, uh, it's a joy to be back, um, see some familiar faces, and I was here last October, um, but there are still some faces I don't know, so if after this, I'd love to get a chance to meet you. Um, thank you. I want to just say a huge, huge thank you to your church for just uh, hosting us so well, um, providing a, a hotel for us to stay in last night. We visited some friends in the San Jose area yesterday, and um, me and my son got to take advantage of the pool yesterday, so we had, had a lot of fun. So um, my wife is here this morning. She was here last time with us, but our son was not. Uh, so Zion is here, and um, we're just very, very glad to be here this morning uh, and open up the Word together. And uh, it's even just a joy to, um, just to hear what's going on in your church. Um, I hear that you guys are going through uh, just a, a bit of a topic, or sorry, a bit of a summer where uh, Pastor Mark's getting a chance to get a break from the pulpit, uh, but there's still a focus on unity. At least that's what I was told. Is that correct? Yeah. All right, good. <laughs> I wasn't far off. But before I actually even heard that, that statement from Pastor Mark, I was already thinking about the passage uh, before us today uh, from 1 Peter chapter 5 for two reasons. First, I'm actually slated to preach this uh, passage at the end of July at our, at our church, at our home church. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, this is a very applicable passage for any Christian. And then as Pastor Mark then mentioned, hey, we're focusing on unity, I thought even more about it and thinking, wow, actually this passage is very applicable to the idea of being unified as a church, being in harmony together. I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, or uh, if it's on a phone, you can turn to there on your app. And as I just briefly mentioned, or maybe alluded to, um, my home church, our home church, Laguna Chinese Baptist Church, this summer we're going through the book of 1 Peter. And it has been such a timely and refreshing word for my soul. If any of you have studied that book before, you might know just how encouraging it is. Because I would summarize that book in one phrase. Hope and holiness in hardship. That's how I would describe the book of 1 Peter. It's all about hope and holiness in the midst of persecution because Peter is writing this to a group of Christians who are going through great hardship, great suffering, and he tells them to hope in God. And we might expect that for people who are going through suffering. But at the same time, he buckles down on the topic of you need to be holy. You need to be growing in holiness, even in the midst of hardship. And I'll explain that a bit more in just a bit after we read the passage. And today I would like us to, we're actually going to focus on the very last passage in this book. Uh, and this passage gets at the topic of hope and humility in hardship. I speak for myself and very openly that I do not handle hardship well. I, might not, I hope I'm not the only one in this room. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not. Um, when it comes to trials and suffering in my life, turning to God is not my gut instinct. It's not the first thing that I do. Uh, when the storms of life come and the boat of my life is just tossed to and fro in the seas, my natural tendency is to turn inward and to look to myself and just try to um, perhaps feel even sorry for myself and uh, try to find answers within. But that's not how God wants us to respond. Um, we're... My habit is to look in all the wrong places and all the wrong refuges for, from the storms. But there is hope, or there is hope in God's word. Um, and God does give us answers on how he wants us to conduct ourselves in the midst of hardship and trials. And that's what we're going to see today from 1 Peter chapter 5. So I invite you to join me as I start reading at verse 6. We're going to read from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 14. I encourage you to follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, 
because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray? Father God, as we unpack this passage, as we we seek to understand your word, may you open our eyes, help us to see wonderful things from your word, and may we be convicted and encouraged. May you give me strength and hide me behind the cross that you would be honored and glorified. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This passage is talking about hope and humility in hardship. And this is how I would summarize Peter's message to the Christians that he's speaking to in this passage. Life, including suffering, is not about you. But God cares for you more than you can ever imagine. I'll say that again. Life, including suffering, is not about you. But God cares for you more than you can ever imagine. Let's look at that a little bit more in detail. And we're going to do that by answering four questions. If we look at the next slide, these are the four questions that we're going to tackle today to help us understand, help us see, uh, perhaps see the argument for that summary. First, who is Peter speaking to? Second, what is humility? Third, what does humility and hardship look like? And number four, what is your foundation? Let's tackle the first one. We'll look at the next slide. Who is Peter speaking to? In short, he is speaking to suffering saints, to suffering Christians. Peter's writing his letter sometime between 60 and 65 AD, and he is writing to Christians living in the region of the Mediterranean world that is now modern-day Turkey. These Christians have been dispersed. They've been spread out across the region because they are fleeing persecution. These Christians are facing great hardship because of their faith in Jesus. They're facing opposition from the general public who see that Caesar is the only king, not Jesus. And the gods of the Roman world are the only deities that you should worship, not God. This would have meant general, or this would have meant governmental crackdowns from Caesar and from the Roman Empire. For those who were Christians in that time and lived in Jewish communities, they also would have been experiencing persecution because the Jews saw Jesus' words as blasphemous. And so they had persecution from that angle as well. We know from the book of Acts that Christians in the early church had to fear for their lives and for their livelihood. Today we may face unpopular opinion, but most of us in the West have not faced this type of persecution And Peter is writing to encourage these suffering Christians. But what does he say? Well, let me just hit some highlights, just kind of a flyover view, some key statements and themes that run throughout this book. If we look at the next slide, we see some of the first verses in this book from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see that focus on the future of something that's solid, that's not going to fade away? If we look at the next verses, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining this outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What amazing promises, what amazing hope that you see there from Peter as he's just unpacking that, just laying that out for these suffering Christians. But then it takes a bit of a surprising turn because you might expect that sort of encouragement from the Apostle Peter. But then in verse 13, we see that he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God. We might expect that, right? But then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I find this very fascinating because Peter's talking to people going through the hardest of times. And you might expect him to start with talking about hope, but then he turns the corner and says, hey, be obedient. I don't think that's the typical, you know, wording of encouragement that we see in a Hallmark card of, or a get well soon card. We, we see this encouragement, but then he says, no, you need to buckle down on growing in holiness. You need to make sure that your life reflects who you are. And we see that emphasized in chapter 2 when we get to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Perhaps you're very familiar with these these verses that he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's just emphasizing who they are, what their identity is in Christ. But then again, He takes it back to holiness. We see this in the next verses. He says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, again, focus on the future, right? That you're not, this is not your permanent home. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Think about, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's suffering. It's like, wait, I need to abstain from the flesh? How about I get out of my suffering? He says, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So after this, we won't go into detail, but just high-level view, he covers some specific areas of life where they must be holy in their conduct. First off, in regard to authorities, governing authorities. Then he talks about honoring your masters. For them, this would have been a a slaveholder culture, though not the same as what we have from our own American history. Uh, but, you know, still, honor those masters above you even if they're not good people. And then he talks about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives. And after this, he, Peter gets directly to the heart of the issue when he comes to being godly amid persecution because Peter shoots straight and tells his listeners that God has called them to something greater than their suffering, but that suffering, they still are going to have to go through it. And until that suffering is over, they must trust God and be faithful to the end. And we see that in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 17. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Talk about backwards thinking from what we're used to today. And then in chapter 4, he jumps into verses 1 and 2, where he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then if he hasn't made it clear enough, in verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, he addresses the leaders of the churches and he tells them, lead with humility. And for those who are submitting to their leadership, submit in humility. Which brings us to today's passage. Now, you may have heard verses 6 and 7 from today's passage to humble yourself, and especially verse 7 when it says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. If any of you have grown up in church or perhaps someone's tried to give give you an encouragement during a time of hardship, you might be very familiar with that verse. But how often do we pull it out of context a little bit 
and we don't realize the bigger picture, that this is him speaking to suffering saints, suffering Christians. But we also need to answer one more question, which is up there, number two. What is humility? Because this is the core of this passage. The topic of humility, it's very important. We must get it right. We must define it well. Because if we don't define this, we're going to miss the mark on, I, I, I would argue, we're going to miss the mark on what Peter's trying to get at here in this passage. First off, I would like to define what uh, humility is not. What are some things that the Bible says that humility is not? Well, first off, it is not, we see there on the next slide, it is not self-pity. True biblical humility is not self-pity where uh, we feel sorry for ourselves or we throw a pity party. My son Zion loves Winnie the Pooh these days, and one of the characters that we're very familiar with and feel sorry for who has a constant cloud over his head, is a perfect example of self-pity. Can you guess who I'm talking about? Anybody want to say it? Eeyore, yes. Having an Eeyore moment, and we all have Eeyore moments, don't we? Having an Eeyore mo moment may feel like you're humble. You may not feel puffed up and proud, and Eeyore does not sound like he's full of himself or proud, but he is not humble. And I'll explain that a bit more in a minute. It is also not self-loathing. Biblical, godly humility is not hating yourself or groveling in the dirt or thinking that you're such an awful person. Many times we think that true humility means that I must always constantly live in sackcloth and ashes and must be like a, a monk in a monastery somewhere where I'm just thinking I'm the most wretched person in the world. And that is not true humility either. Although it might be pointing in the right direction, but it's not true humility. I'll explain that, tell you why in a minute. It's also not self-deprecation. Or in other words, it's not you just constantly putting yourself down and making it sound like you're not as good as people say you are. People try to pay you a compliment, and it's just like, oh, I'm not as, oh, it's okay, it's nothing. And I, 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 I didn't really, I'm not, no good at that, you know? Someone's always much better than me. I would say that that is the most devious probably the most, the hardest to catch among these self-proclaimed versions of humility. But, and it sounds nice, but in the end, I would argue that it is not true biblical humility. Now, why is that the case? I like to think of this in the analogy of a balloon. So picture a balloon in your minds. And you see, each one of these sounds humble, but in fact, they are inwardly focused. The opposite of humility is pride. And oftentimes we think of pride as having a big ego or having an overinflated view of yourself. So, as you picture the balloon, you would think of a balloon that is overinflated, bigger than what it should be. Now, as naturally we would think that humility then must be the opposite of an overinflated balloon, which should be a deflated balloon. But here's the problem. Most of the time, when we feel like our lives are that deflated balloon, we wish that we were inflated. Self-pity, the self-pity balloon, wishes that it was inflated and it therefore feels sorry for itself. The self-loathing balloon hates itself for either being deflated or for trying to be inflated. The self-deprecating balloon wants to be inflated, but for fear of looking a little bit too inflated or inf more inflated than other people, then it has to make sure that it's just a little less inflated than the next person. You see, the core of pride is self-centeredness. You can be self-centered when you feel great about yourself or when you are down in the dumps. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a, one of the best chapters in the book. It's on the topic of pride. And he has this to say about pride. He says, I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one dislikes pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself this. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me? or shove their oar in, or patronize me, or show off. 
The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. If it is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next person. Do you see how that plays into these false versions of humility? Self-pity wishes that it had more than the next person, but it doesn't, so therefore it throws a pity party. Self-loathing hates itself for not having more humility than the next person. Self-deprecation is fearful of not being more humble than the next person. They're in a competition to see who can be the most humble. But all of these, in the end, are inward-focused, self-focused. So then, if that is not true humility, what is true biblical humility? Well, this is what I would argue how the Bible defines humility. It is being of low estate or being brought low. That is what the word that is used in this passage in the Greek literally means, being of low estate or being brought low. Now, at first, you might think, wait a minute, that just sounds like a deflated balloon. I would argue that is not the case. Um, if you look more closely at how humility is described in Scripture, we start to see some different pictures. First, one of the things that I think is a running theme throughout Scripture about the topic of humility is that it speaks of it as accurate self-estimation. In other words, it's, it's having an accurate or an accurate view of yourself or an accurate estimation, seeing yourself through the lens of Scripture. Uh, Romans 12.3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you see that there? The idea of do not think of yourself more highly than yourself. And also, think of in the Proverbs when it's saying the idea of being wise in your own eyes. That is the epitome of pride. So, realizing that you are not all that and a bag of chips. Realizing that you need to view yourself through the lens of Scripture. Also, another uh, key idea of humility comes from Philippians 2. Perhaps you're familiar with this passage. The idea of putting others first. At its core, humility is the idea of a servant's heart. Putting others, putting God primarily and others ahead of yourself. Philippians 2 Perhaps you're familiar with this, but um, just verses 3 and 4, where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then it goes into the example of Christ, who humbled himself. And there's also this idea, and this was, this was so revolutionary when, when I heard it, but it's, there's this, it's this idea of self-forgetfulness. First uh, Corinthians 4, uh, verses 1 through 7, are just such an amazing thing where Paul is defending himself to the Corinthian church, but he's saying, look, I do not care what you think of me. At the end of the day, you're not my judge. But at the end of the day, I don't care what I think of myself either. At the end of the day, God is my judge. God is the one who ha has the final say. So this idea of, look, I don't even think about myself and I don't worry about what you think of me. All I care is about what God thinks. Um, this is the term self-forgetfulness or blessed self-forgetfulness. That, um, that's something from uh, Pastor Timothy Keller when uh, that was just such an amazing thing. And I think that term is so fitting. And um, I think he gets that idea from C.S. Lewis, from Mere Christianity, from that same chapter when he says this. How is it that people who, who are obviously eaten up by pride can say they believe in God and appear to be very religious? I am afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a pennyworth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow men. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. 
it is far better to forget about yourself altogether. Now, now that we have an idea of what true biblical humility is, basically, if I had to sum it up in a word and a phrase, true biblical humility is you realizing life's not about me. And that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing. Some people get that idea of life isn't about you, but they stop there. True biblical humility realizes that is a freeing thing, that is a good thing, that life is not about you. It is about someone much greater. So if that is what true humility is, let's, what does humility in hardship look like? What does humility in hardship look like? So this is where we get to the start beginning of today's passage. Let's unpack this together. So first off, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So if Peter is encouraging these Christians to be humble in the midst of hardship, one of the ways that they need to be, practice their humility is turning to God amid anxiety. Turning to God amid, in the midst of anxiety. Being humble in hardship means you're turning to God. You're handing everything over to him. We see this as just read in verses 6 and 7. And it, as I've mentioned earlier, you, know, you might be familiar with these verses. They are often quoted. It's an encouraging truth. But I think we often forget that this idea of casting your anxieties on God, that is connected to the command, humble yourself. So think of that, invert that a little bit. In order for you to cast your cares on God in the midst of hardship, that's an act of humility. So if you're being proud, you're going to find it hard to cast your cares on God. When you're anxious, you're being proud. Now, I don't know about you, but anxiety and fear and worry is something that one of the things that God has allowed me to struggle with in great ways and I can tell you, in the midst of panic, in the midst of anxiety, I am not feeling proud. In fact, I feel like I'm out of control. But where is my pride? It's another layer below where I'm trying to be in control of the situation, but I'm not. And that's making me panic. True humility and hardship means that you are handing it all over to God. Now, you might think, okay, that's a bit of a stretch, but I think we have a passage to back this up. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Perhaps Peter had this in mind because he was at the Sermon on the Mount when, Peter said the, when Jesus said these words. The word here that's used for humility, the, ver the verb to humble yourself, this is the same word that Jesus used at the Sermon on the Mount. We're in this passage, we're not going to unpack it, but perhaps you're familiar with it. Jesus says, well, first off, he starts with talking about earthly treasures versus, versus heavenly treasures. So remember, he says, you know, um, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he turns and says, therefore, you know, be humble and do not worry about tomorrow. At first, you might think that he is turning the corner and he's changing this topic. I don't think so. That word, therefore, is there for a reason. And I think Jesus is making a connection between the worries of life and treasure in heaven and your heart. He's basically saying that your anxiety reveals what you treasure. Your anxiety reveals your treasure. Because you are craving it and you're wanting it so badly, but you can't get it. And Jesus is saying, don't put your treasures here on earth. Don't let your heart grab onto the things of this world. Store up things in heaven. And what does that mean then to cast all your cares on, on God? Well, it means that you're giving, we're giving our concerns completely to God. We're giving everything over to him. You're not trying to withhold anything from him. It means that you're not handing over 99% and you're holding on to 1%. You're handing over 100%. All of your concerns, realizing that you are not in control. You are not the one calling the shots. God is the one who is in control. Notice how he said that you are humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. 
I don't think Peter's saying that just to sound Christian or to sound nice. He means that very intentionally. He's telling these Christians who are suffering, you are under the mighty hand of God. God is bigger than all of your anxieties. He is bigger than the persecution that you are facing. He is much, much stronger. If he wanted to, he could end the persecution you're experiencing with a snap of his finger, with just the word of his mouth. He is mighty. And submit yourself under that. Realize that he is bigger. But he doesn't just leave it there and says, humble yourself. He has such such amazing things when he says, he cares for you. Think about how many people are on this globe. How many people there are. How many different things that God has to, you know, run in this universe. But it's no problem for him. He runs everything smoothly and is not exhausted in the slightest. And he cares for you. You, of all people, among everything going on in this world, everything going on in this universe, he looks at you and cares for you. That is one way that we can humble ourselves. What does humility look like? Turning to God amidst anxiety and resting in God's power, resting in his care. What does it also mean? Humility and hardship also means guarding against temptation. Guarding against temptation. And this comes from verses 8 and 9. At first it seems like Peter's changing the subject here, but I think he's continuing the topic. So what does he say in verse 8? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So at first you might think, okay, well, we've moved from the humility topic, so now we're just talking about be on guard against spiritual warfare. But notice what he says in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now why would he say that? Why would he mention, you're not the only one, there are other people suffering? I think he's still talking about humility. Have humility in the midst of hardship. Because he's telling, look, you need to be guarding against temptation. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're being alert of the bigger picture and you are guarding against specific temptations, possible temptations. I think the two possible temptations he he's, has in mind here is, number one, discouragement, right? He's reminding them, look, you're not the only one suffering. So don't have a woe is me mentality. I'm the only one. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm the only one suffering here. Oh, God, don't you take notice of me. He's saying, no. You're not the only one. So do not be self-centered and focused on yourself and think that it's just you. But he's also saying, guard against self-pity. Do not look at yourself and think, woe is me. My suffering is worse than other people. And it might be. And this is one of the hardest things, I think the hardest pill for us to swallow when we're going through hardship. But he's saying, look, your persecution is not worse than the next person. Do not get sucked into yourself thinking that you are the only one going through persecution and that your problems are more important than the people around you. That's hard stuff. That's a really hard thing to, to, to take. But he doesn't just leave it there. Praise God for that. He doesn't just leave it with that, that conviction. He gives them hope because we get to the next part with verses 10 and 11. One of the ways that we can have humility and be humble in the midst of suffering is to rest in future hope. Notice what he says then in verses, verse 10 and 11. He gets to, and after you've suffered a little while, he doesn't just you know, discount their suffering. He says, look, yes, the suffering is real. And if, Peter, if there was anybody who could talk about it, Peter could talk about it. He had experienced great persecution. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you by his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Humility and hardship also means that you're resting in a greater future hope. You're not stuck in the here and now. You're looking to the future. This is such amazing hope. And notice how Peter used two key adjectives in verse 10 at the beginning. He says, there's the word little, you've suffered a little while. But then he says, he's called you by his eternal glory. 
I think he's using a little bit of wordplay there, little and eternal. He's saying that the suffering you experience is just a blip in comparison to the greatness of, human, of eternal glory that is to be experienced in the future. Perhaps one of the reasons that we Christians do not suffer well today is because we don't think enough about what happens after we die. Peter's trying to get their eyes on eternal things. And not only is suffering short compared to eternity, he is telling them that God will make all things right. He will make all things right. Look at verse 10 again. I want you to look at verse 10. Look at those adjectives used. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Now, think about the opposite of those adjectives. What would be some words that would come to your mind? Broken, something that is weak, flimsy, that is being tossed to and fro. Peter is saying, whatever is broken in your life will be made whole. Whatever feels weak in the midst of this hardship will be strengthened. Whatever is tossed about to and fro will be established and firmly fixed. And God will do this because nothing can stop his hand. He has dominion. He has, he has all the power. As Job said in Job 42.2, he says, Now I know that you are God and nothing can stay your hand. God's going to do it. So we've answered three questions so far. Who is Peter speaking to? So that helped us to set the context. We also got a little bit of context thinking about what is humility? Ultimately, humility is not thinking about yourself, is realizing life is not about you. It's about God, and that's a good thing. So then he brings in that topic of humility into persecution. What does humility and hardship look like? It means that you're turning to God amid the anxieties you face, guarding against temptations that you will face in persecution, because those are times that the devil does seek to capitalize on our weakness and resting in future hope. This leaves us one, with one final question. What is your foundation? And this comes from verses 12 through 14, particularly verse 12. Notice what he said by saying, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you. So he's explaining how he's been writing to them. He's been writing through his brother, this brother in the faith, Silvanus. And he tells them what he's been seeking to do, exhorting and declaring to them, what is the true grace of God? And he says, stand firm in it. And that begs the question. What is, he's begging the question for them. What is your foundation? What are you standing firm on? And that's a question that we can take to heart today. What is your foundation? Is it the true grace of God? And is it, if we look at final slide here, I think there should be one more slide. Or maybe not. Nope, Okay. Is it the true grace of God? Or as I mentioned earlier, if I had to summarize this passage, is your foundation in this? That life, including suffering, and even in the midst of hardship, is not about you. But God loves and cares for you more than you could ever, ever imagine. If you are here today, and you are not a Christian, or you are a skeptic, or perhaps you're one who grew up in the church and you're questioning your faith, you're doubting your faith, can I speak to you for a moment? First off, I think I can speak on behalf of this church that we're very thankful you are here today. And I would ask you, what is your foundation? What is your foundation? What is your support when suffering comes? Because everybody in this life, non-Christian or Christian, will experience suffering. Perhaps you have looked at Christianity and thought that it is simply a nice, comforting crutch for weak people going through hardships in life. Can I challenge you on that? Because that is not how the Bible speaks of suffering. And I hope you've seen today that the comfort that the Bible offers for suffering people is quite backwards from what one might expect. 
In more traditional cultures, the common response to suffering is to stop thinking about yourself, right? Get, your fo get the focus on a greater good. And that's not entirely wrong in and of itself, but it is incomplete. On the other hand, more modern and, or I should say postmodern and Western response to suffering would be to build up your self-esteem. Look within yourself. Love yourself more. Which is not completely wrong in and of itself either because love is something key that gives us comfort through suffering and that is needed, but it's getting it from the wrong place. Christianity is the only place where you see the correct way to responding to suffering. It realizes that, yes, life is not about you, but it doesn't stop there. At the same time, while the Bible says that you are nothing compared to God, that you are but simply but dust in comparison to the power and majesty and greatness of God, at the same time, God loves and cares for you more than all the precious jewels that are under the earth. That's not a Hallmark card answer. To suffering. It's not an easy pill to swallow, but it is comforting. It's freeing. And another reason why the Christian answer to suffering is not a nice little crutch is because it comes with a price tag. To have this hope, you must surrender everything to God. You must surrender your whole life to Him. We believe that the words from this passage are inspired by God along with the rest of the Bible. And the Bible makes it clear that everyone has sinned against God who is perfect in all of his attributes. And the core of sin is pride, self-exaltation. We put ourselves above God and we look down on him, manipulate him to do what we want him to do, have him set up life the way that we want it set up. We seek to call the shots. That is the core of sin, pride. We do not submit to God as we should. And for that, we deserve punishment. We deserve hell. But God made a way for us to be saved from that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to take our place on the cross. He took our sin of pride upon himself and experienced the punishment that we deserve and showed us the greatest highest picture of humility that we could ever see. And the free gift of eternal life and a renewed relationship with him as our Lord and Savior is available if we surrender and place our faith in him alone. That can be yours today if you do not know that. Now, Christian friend who is suffering, can I speak to you for a moment? If you are here today and you are experiencing hardship, this passage is speaking directly to you, and I know that this is not easy to hear. This is perhaps one of the hardest things to hear. To hear, that, to hear Peter say that in the middle of suffering you are to humble yourself can sound like salt in an open wound. But can I suggest that you think of it in a different way? What might God be doing through your suffering to make you more dependent on him and to delight in him more. God uses suffering as a surgeon, working through our hearts and weeding out the cares and the idols of our hearts so that we might be more healthy, spiritually healthy, to remove the things we hold so dear about this life and help us to cling to him more tightly. It is only when we surrender the things of this life, even the good things of this life, to God that we can truly enjoy them. For me personally, speaking as a father here on Father's Day, one of the things that I never ex expected that would happen when I be would become a dad is that I would experience anxieties about the well-being of my son. Just his health, just his future, his eternal destiny. Those are things that weigh on me. And, if I allow those, and you might argue that those are good things. Yes, they are good things, but good things can become bad things if they become God things, to paraphrase what Paul Tripp says about idols. And for me, if I'm holding too tightly to him, if I'm holding too tightly to the precious thing, you know, the preciousness of my son, I'm not going to be able to enjoy life. 
with him. Because I'm going to be so caught up in anxiety that I'm going to be so focused inwardly. I'm not focused on him and loving him the way I should. We will grow anxious if we fear losing the things of this world. And we will be devastated when they're gone. Please hear me. If you're suffering, there is a place for mourning and lament. The Bible speaks to that and it is full of lament. Just look at the Psalms. It is very biblical. It is right to mourn loss and to lament with those who are suffering. But can we lament and mourn with hope? In the midst of pain and tears, can we say, not my will, but your will be done? Now, if you are a Christian here today and you're, you're not experiencing suffering, can I speak to you for a moment? What is your foundation? Are you prepared for suffering? Because suffering will come. It is inevitable. Are you preparing for it well? And what is the best way to prepare for it? There could be lots of answers to that. But at the end of the day, one of the best ways from this passage is Grow in humility. That's what's going to help set you up for when you face suffering in the future. How do we grow in suffering? I mean, sorry, grow in humility. I would quote C.S. Lewis one more time from the end of that chapter in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing can ever be done before it. Because if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Did you catch that? If you're here today and you think, I'm not a proud person, you've just said that you are better than other people. You're not like proud people. You are, in fact, proud. I'm proud. I'm humbled by this myself. Take steps to recognize how pride manifests itself in your life, both in the forms where your balloon in life is overinflated or high and mighty, or deflated and you're down in the dumps. Look to see how pride is showing itself and coming up from your heart. And make war on that pride in your own heart. And grow in having a high view of God, considering others to be more important than yourself. Also, Christian friend, if you are here and you're not hurting, are you looking for people who are hurting and looking for ways to actively serve them? Now, I'm not saying that the first thing you need to go tell them is the summary of this sermon. If you go and the first statement out of your mouth to a suffering person is, life's not about you, it's going to be okay, I will come and slap you upside the head. That is not what you should say. At least not the first thing that you should say. Part of loving someone means going through hardship with them and just being there for them, taking the initiative to do things that will help that person even if they do not ask. I think a lot of times we may be very considerate to people as Christians and we may say, hey, just let me know if you need anything. That means well, but that doesn't help hurting people. Take the initiative and go and do something for them. Do something, think about what just the mundane things of life that they need to do and offer to help with that. Whether it's just helping with things, chores at home, running errands, bringing a meal, small things. Take the time to do that for them. Just write a little encouragement note. Even if it's been months or a year since they went through a hard time, such as losing a loved one, that pain does not leave. Just tell them a little encouragement note that you are caring for them, you're thinking of them. Just give them a call or just go and just listen. We don't have to speak right away. And when the moments are appropriate for sharing the truth of Scripture, make sure that it is balanced. Because I will say, and somebody who has gone through hardship, one of the lowest times in my life, one of the hardest times I was going through, I was mourning, and I needed people to tell me, hey, you know what? This isn't about you. This is about God and his glory. I needed that. But I needed that at the right times. And I also needed the other side of that coin, that God is caring for me, even if I don't feel like it. God is with me and he is caring for me more than I could ever, ever 
imagine. So let's be people who go and seek to help hurting people and sharing both sides of that coin in the right ways in the appropriate times. This is an important key for growing in unity as a church. Come back full circle. I hope that you see that today's passage, it does speak to the idea of unity. Can you imagine being having a group of people such as a church where you're seeking to grow in humility, putting others above yourself, but ultimately putting yourself under the mighty hand of God and seeking to help people who are going through hardship and suffering together. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I want to take a moment to pray for you as a church that you would grow in this and pray for our church that we would grow in this as well. For every church that we would grow in humility and hope in the middle of hard times. I want to, let me pray for us, pray for you. Father God, I want to pray right now for Lighthouse Bible Church here in San Jose, that you would be working in them, that the words from your, from your Holy Spirit that you inspired through, through your servant Peter, that these words would become true in their lives, that seeds would be planted and that you would be working in them, that they would be growing both in having great hope in the middle of hardship but also in humility, that we would realize that life's not about us. And that's a good thing. That's a freeing thing. That's a blessing. And that we would entrust ourselves to you as our God under your mighty hand. Help us to be looking, help this church to be looking for the hurting around them, be sensitive to the people, even in the pews next to them that they would be sensitive to everyone around them looking for the hurting, looking for those who are quiet and perhaps those who are silently going through suffering, that they would reach out and just be there to listen, provide just a, 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 just a hug or just even just a, a bit of encouragement. And help us also not to just focus on care, but also remembering that we want to just point everyone to you Help this church to be exalting you and seeing such a high view of you when, so that they would be ready for when hard times come. I pray that you would be blessing this church, blessing the leaders of this church with just your humility, that you would be humbling them under your mighty hand and that they would just be resting in you for no matter what comes their way. We ask these things in your name. Amen.